morning to everyone not in the front two rows. <laughs> Who thinks prayer is a, a powerful thing to do? Do you know what the most powerful prayer is though? It's one we don't actually pray often enough, I don't think. And it's a, it's a single word prayer. And I want us all to pray it this morning. And I want you to pray it after me. Help! Because <laughs> we, don't, we don't ask God for help often enough. As soon as we feel competent in something, we, we tend to go off on our own. We think, Thank, thanks for that instruction, God. Okay, leave me alone, I can, ma- I can handle it here. Because who does that at work? You listen to instructions. If, if you're lucky, somebody will listen to instructions. And then they go off and do it on their own. And they stuff it up a couple of times and eventually... They get it right. And so I was thinking about my message this morning during the week. And I've done this a few times. In fact, it's, let's see, there's 52 weeks in a year. I'd probably only preach for, say, 40 of them, perhaps less these days, because other people are stepping up, which is good. Let's, let's say 30, just to make the maths easier. Um, 17 years... 30, let's make it 15, that's easier. <laughs> four, that's about four and a half, that, is it four, 450? No, four and a half thousand? No, can't be that many. 510, there you go, five, 500 messages. So I've done, it, oh, I've done it before, so I could probably do it in my sleep. Probably wouldn't be very entertaining. Uh, and so I was thinking, and especially when you come to something like the Ten Commandments, because we're on Commandments 7, it's a, it's a meaty one, don't commit adultery. You sort of think, well, you could almost make a, a, a message of lists. Don't do this, avoid this, get this out of your life, don't, don't do this. And we've talked a bit about the, the dangers of adultery and the whole sexuality issue and, and everything else, but God challenged me while I was thinking about this. He said, well, don't you think there might be more to it than that? I'm thinking, more to it? Come on, this is, this is one of the... These commandments are really simple. Do it adultery. It's four, four words. And what, what could be deep about do not commit adultery? And I was listening to a message by another preacher and suddenly it twigged. God never tells us things that are obvious on the surface with any meaning that he wants us to get out of it. So this morning, I want to tell you a story, which I tend to do a lot as well. But it sounds great when you make it sound so it's different and new. Are you ready for a story? Turn with me to the Old Testament. Or if you haven't got a book, you can look at it on the screen. The book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It's a mutual admiration society here. We've got that. The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. Not nice. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, no, at this time, sorry, 
Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel and among their captives was a young who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as a gift 750 pounds of silver, which is, I don't know, about 300 kilos worth, um, 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of clothing. You sort of wonder about that, don't you? All this gold, silver and a couple of suits. I mean, surely if you'd taken that much gold, the king of Israel could have made a few suits, but it seemed important. The letter of the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. So when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, This man sends me a leper to heal. Am I God that I can give life and take it away? I can see he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash, your side, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. Sounds fair. If you've got leprosy, wouldn't you think, well, okay, if it's that easy, I'm, I'm off to do it. But it says here, Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he certainly would come out to meet me. See, he hasn't even met Elisha at this point. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and I would be healed. Now, how many of us think, just like Naaman? Uh, Brendan, can you come out here, please? Holy God, whoa, bang, whoa, whoa, we get violent and we do that. And be healed in Jesus' name. Go and sit down. The Lord has saved you, your faith. We expect a show. But he's standing at the door and a, and a servant comes, gives him a note. And he opens the note and says, go wash yourself in the Jordan seven times. It's like, that's, that's not what I expected. That's not how God works. And he's so angry, he says, aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana and the Farpar, better than any of the rivers of Israel? He's looking to the quality of the water now. <laughs> Some people won't drink unless it's a Puritan. Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. How many of us have ever come before God and asked for something and hasn't worked out quite the way we wanted? And we've stomped off in a huff. Prayed and it didn't work. Only prayer. Not coming to corporate prayer again. That's why people haven't turned up. But his officers were obviously cut from a different cloth and they tried to reason with him. And... It's very clever. Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? Sounds like a lot of Christians I know. They expect Christianity to be a lot more difficult than it really is, and it makes them happy when it is. They thrive on you know, wearing the, the hair shirt and whipping themselves constantly. 
And so he says, so you should certainly obey him when he says simply, go and wash and be cured. So Naaman changed his mind, went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child and he was healed. Then Naaman and his, and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As sure as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And then Naaman urged him to take the gift. Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. Now, I have a question for you. Did Elisha Elisha heal Naaman? Who did? God did. What was Naaman healed of? And... No, he didn't really doubt, did he? There was an underlying condition that Naaman suffered from that isn't mentioned here but is sort of obvious from the text. Pride. God had to heal Naaman of his pride before he could heal him of his leprosy. Yet we read that scripture and we see it as a scripture that shows the power of God to heal. But below the surface, there was something deeper going on that God wanted to bring out. The healing of his pride had to come first. It wasn't what he'd gone for. It wasn't what his letter of introduction said. It wasn't what he thought he wanted, but God knew what he needed. So that had to come first. See, what was the result? If Naaman had gone to Elisha, And Elisha had waved his hands over him, banged his hand on his forehead, knocked him over, slew him in the spirit, killed him, whatever. Um, Naaman would have got up and he would have said, I am healed, Elisha has healed me, this is really great. Here, have all the gold, the silver and the shirts, I'm going back to start another war because that's what I'm good at and uh, life goes on. But because God changed his attitude first, he came before Elisha and his last words were, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. Because of what God had done, he suddenly came to a realization of the lordship, authority and power of Almighty God. See, God always has an ulterior motive when things, he, he performs miracles because he wants people to come to an understanding of his power, his presence, his grace, his mercy because he often sees the hidden issues and when we get healed of those, we actually understand that it's the power of God. It's not the power of the preaching. It's not the power of the hand on our forehead. It's not the power of the, the, the person pushing them over. It's not the, not the atmosphere It's a realisation of the authority and power of God. Now, consider the seventh commandment. Let's get get back on track, shall we? That's a nice story. What's it got to do with thou shalt not commit adultery? Surely nothing. 
But I want you to consider something. Is God just saying in the seventh commandment not to have sex with anyone but your own wife? Well, obviously he is. But is it that one-dimensional? Is that it? Because let me tell you, if the seventh commandment just means get married, have sex with one woman, and your life will be fine, that to me is a rule. And through my experience, God does not lay down rules. He's not a rule maker saying, well, I think you should do that because I'm all powerful, you're not, so do as you're told and don't argue. Otherwise, I've got a smite button here and don't you forget it. That's not God. He doesn't create rules because rules are easily broken and they're petty. Who's heard that story about the, the two Irish boys driving back from the pub late at night and they'd possibly had a little bit to drink but we don't know whether they were over the limit or not but they were stopped by a very grumpy Irish policeman who made them both get out of the car and he got his baton out and he said you rotten little lads I'm going to make sure that you're not breaking the law and so he drew a big circle and he said you stand in that and don't you move and I'm going to go and check your car he gets out and he checks his car and to his disgruntled horror there's nothing wrong with it and so he walks past he taps the tail light with his baton and it smashes he says aha he says you've got a smashed tail light i'm going to book you and he turns over and looks at them and they're standing in the circle smirking at him and he's looking and thinking right walks over the other side smashes the other one he says that's double demerit points and double the fine and he turns and looks at them and they're laughing and he thinks, this is, he goes around the front, he sticks his bat on into the headlight, and he says, right, that's it, driving without lights, three demerit points, triple the fine. And he turns around, looks at them, and they are beside themselves with laughter. They're falling over themselves. He says, right, that's it, what the heck do you guys think is so funny? And he says, while you've been going around the car, we've been jumping out of the circle. <laughs> so you see, rules are petty. And can be broken quite easily. But Jesus, God himself, isn't into making rules just for the sake of rules. Why would God tell us not to commit adultery? Because it makes families happy, keeps everything in order, saves them having to change the records, you know. John married Jane. Oh, rats, no, we have to scrap that out. He married Julian. Oh, gosh, now he's gone. It's not a rule. Because it makes God happy that we follow instructions. As with the story of Naaman, there's something deeper behind what God asks us to do. The Ten Commandments aren't a list of ten rules. They're guideposts for us to understand the principles of God and to live within those principles so that our life is successful. Jesus actually makes it very plain in the New Testament in Matthew 5, 27, he says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. I hope you have because we've been talking about it. But I say anyone who's ever looked at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you're going, whoa, hang on, that takes it to a whole new level. You mean we're all adulterers? Hands up if you're male. <laughs> yes, you have. I mean, that takes it to a whole new level. You haven't done anything physically, and yet Jesus is saying, you could well have committed adultery. Now, if you're not married, you sort of think, well, hang on, hang on, I haven't committed adultery. 
And what if the, the person in my head isn't married? That's, that's Obviously, Jesus is talking about a deeper issue here. Notice, later on, he has a conversation with the woman who has been caught in adultery because they dragged the woman, because it's always the woman's fault. And so that's why he dragged the woman. But you notice here, he's not addressing women, is he? The whole idea of the culture that you could blame women for that is put to rest right here in this scripture. He is saying, men, if you have looked at a woman, notice it doesn't say you women who are always looking at men, much to our horror and discouragement, that it appears to be the other way around that's the problem here. And so he, he zeroes in exactly on that point and says, okay, it's what's in your heart that counts. And it doesn't matter whether you're married or not. It's your attitude towards sex. It's your attitude towards the opposite gender that affects what you're going to do. Think back to the 10th commandment. Anybody remember what that was? Do not covet. And it gives a whole list of... We said that, well, see, commandment 10 is a soft option. Because you're not doing anything. Just coveting, you know, none of your business, what I'm thinking. No, it isn't any of your business, actually, what I'm thinking. But it's God's business. Because God knows that what we're thinking translates into actions. And actions repeated translate into habits, which become a way of life, which turn into our attitudes, which direct where we're going. And let let me tell you, most of our attitudes can easily direct us in the wrong direction. Because we don't like rules. We look at the Ten Commandments and say, well, we can disobey those because there's no, you know, commit adultery. Everybody does it. You know, look, presidents and, so if they can do it, we can, and nobody suffers anymore. Nobody gets hurt. Everybody lives happily ever after. And if that's what you think, you're watching too much television. Except perhaps the good wife. Um, Nobody seems happy in that show. So the issue for God is more than what we do, it is what causes us to do what we do. It's our attitudes and the habits that come from those attitudes. Naaman needed to address his prideful attitude before he could be healed of leprosy. God's commandments can be taken at face value as a call to obey an instruction which results in fewer social breakdowns, relationship breakdowns, less STDs. And a lower social cost, because we talked about those things last week. But I believe there's more to it than that. Because God wants us to be thinking about the principles behind his commandments. What basic attitude do people have when they commit adultery? A generous outgoing one. I I know what you're thinking. Because we wander around, looking around thinking, that person there looks as though they would benefit from an illicit relationship that would destroy their life. I might go and help them with it. Because we're, we're just naturally generous and outgoing people. We just want to help. Isn't that right? No. It's usually totally selfish. That person is hot. I want to have sex with them. And I don't care who's associated with them, married with them, already having sex with them, the children involved, any of that. I just, you know, it's that old story that, you know, God created man with two heads, but only enough blood to operate one at a time. Am I allowed to say that in church? 
<laughs> because often men think with the wrong appendage. Yeah, good. Uh, I won't go anymore. J. John, in his book about the Ten Commandments, has five R's to a fair-proof marriage. And interestingly enough, they are all attitude adjustments. But once you have an attitude adjustment, guess what? You have to take action. Thought has to translate into action. And so they're the five R's. Respect, responsibility, relating, romance, and resolve. I'm just going to quickly, quickly go through those. Respect is an easy one but often neglected. There was once a lecture held entitled How to Get Your Wife to Treat You Like a King. And all, this was in the 18th century and all these men flocked to this lecture and the guy got up and said, it's very simple. If you want your wife to treat you like a king, you have to treat her like a queen. Respect is all important. If you want something... If you want to be respected, you have to respect others, especially when it comes to your wife. Responsibility. Oh, isn't that a word we hate? When we get married, there's actually responsibility that not only falls upon the wife. Many husbands would like to think that their wife can be responsible for stuff because they're generally better at it than us. Oh, it's just me. Okay, um, I'll move on with that. Um, it's interesting that responsibility is about fixing the problem, not fixing the blame. One thing I've noticed is when couples go into crisis, they spend more time trying to fix, pin the blame on each other than they do trying to fix the problem. We need to have the attitude that Jesus has in Philippians 2 verse 3. It says, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You, may have, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And if you go on to read further in that verse, it tells you what those attitudes are. You have to relate to one another. Strangely, you'd think that was strange for marriage advice. You need to talk to one another. A recent survey showed that most married couples... Uh, in the age group of about 20 to 35, talk to each other about 10 minutes a day. You see, they've both got jobs, they're very busy, and they hardly spend more than 10 minutes. If you, you, my impression is that you marry somebody to be with them. 10 minutes is not being with somebody. It's passing in the night. It's, it's living with a stranger. We need to actually spend more time relating, talking, and listening to each other. Which brings me to the next point, which is romance. I don't know how to put this nicely, really. Oh, well, yes, I do. If there was more courting in marriage, there'd be fewer marriages in court. Basically, intimacy in marriage should be unashamedly erotic. How to make it plainer. Get a book. <laughs> Doesn't have to be the one with a thousand... Um, variations but it has to be more than one come on you need to have ten in your repertoire <laughs> choose different rooms because <laughs> you, you, <th> <laughs> you want me to spell it out 
<laughs> turn the washing machine on. Um, eroticism in marriage, in a Christian marriage, is essential. Often we think about the idea of marriage and God, and God is holy, and therefore, because of this Greek thing I talked about a couple of weeks back where we separate our spirituality and our bodies into good and bad, we, we get this idea that you know, when we close the bedroom door, or the bathroom door, or the kitchen door, wherever you are, um, God somehow closes his eyes and goes, la, 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 have they finished yet? God sometimes looks and says, you guys are boring. I'm bored. You're bored. Why don't you try something different? It's, you're married. You are allowed to have fun. You're allowed to giggle. I mean, who's ever laughed during sex? If you think about it, it's the most ridiculous thing on the planet. Uh, humans do. I mean, if it's not funny, it's really, really sad. We get hung up on it all. Go home. If you're married, go home. Have a good laugh on me this afternoon. <laughs> Don't think about me. <laughs> that could kill the atmosphere. But it's, it's something God designed that he loves it. If you are erotic in your intimacy when you're married, God, God is into it. Romance. Resolve. Decide to make it work. For a successful marriage, you need a resolve to be committed to your wife or husband, not only on the wedding day, but on each day of your married life, and both partners need to have made that commitment. Tell yourselves that you're going to make it work or die trying. Not kill each other trying, notice. Die trying. <laughs> there is a difference. But notice that all of those things require that we change our attitude because most of us come from marriage, into marriage, from a single life where to a large degree we only have ourselves to think about. So marriage is not just an exciting ceremony that costs your parents heaps of money and gives the guests a mediocre meal for an exorbitant price just for a day so that you can wear good clothes and spend an exorbitant amount again on a photographer who sort of has the whole day mapped out from beginning to end that it takes you three days to look at all the photos and, and the presents, of course. Usually just short of a house, but only just. I, no, I remember when we got five toasters. These days that never happens because you have a registry and they all get ticked off. But let me tell you, that was a blessing. We had five weddings we didn't have to buy presents for. Well, four, we kept one. So if we're like Naaman and only concerned with ourselves and our own problems, we're likely to look at God's commandments as inconvenient rules put in our way to make our life unfulfilling. But that's not God's attitude at all he wants us to look behind the command to the principle don't commit adultery it's basically saying stop thinking of yourself think of others don't think of yourself as important but think of others as more important you look at most of the commandments and there's that principle or a similar one behind it god is actually training us through our actions to understand something deeper now, often we'd like it the other way. Why doesn't God just tell us the deep, meaningful principles and then we'll blossom out of that? No, you won't. Get real. 
Most of us are so thick that we just need to be told what to do so that we get into the right habit and then we can have it explained to us why what we're doing is good for us. Because we're not philosophical people. With this mess of hormones and, and sort of adrenaline and, and brain cells and nerve cells and tissue and, and skin. and We need clear instructions. Perhaps I'm just talking about me. But, but it's important to understand that there is something deeper behind them. And that God will always address the deeper issue first. I wish Vicky was here because she'd be sitting in the front row going, the issue is never the issue. What we come before God and ask for is very rarely what God sees us as needing. Sure, we might need healing. We might need prosperity. We might need grace. We might need a new job. We might need something that's obvious on the surface. But God is always going to say, what is underlying that? You know, you come and see... Pray for a new job. Say, God, I need a new job. I, I really, I hate this job. I want a new job. And so God looks and says, well, Brendan's asked for a new job. He's prayed. He's a faithful person. Hang on, what's he like in his current job? Skives off. He's taken more sick days than he's due and he's never sick. Um, sort of never gives good value for money. And he wants a new job. <laughs> I'm only picking, picking on <laughs> Brendan's self-employed so he's in trouble if that, that's how he's uh, <laughs> yes uh, but we often we're trying to escape something or avoid something by praying for something better but God says hang on if I give you a new job based on that character analysis that I've just done you're going to fail in that job so perhaps you shouldn't have a job perhaps you should actually learn to be a person of better character so that you fit the job you want. So often we struggle about things and God never answers my prayer and I'm not and we get we, we kick the tires and and do these things, but God is actually attempting something different in our life. Like Naaman, we're praying to be healed of, healed of leprosy, but God's saying, Well, hang on, there's a deeper issue here that you need to get fixed first before you can get what you've asked for. And the interesting thing is that understanding that is actually really important on a very basic level because the principles that I've just outlined in terms of the seventh commandment are equally as true when it comes to salvation. See, salvation isn't a rule. God didn't say, okay, let's, ha- let's have a rule here. The people I really like and like me will have a club. If you say you like me, you can be part of my club. The rest of you can go to hell, literally. But you see, it's not a rule God put into place. It's a principle of life. I mean, God created the universe, and the instant the universe was created, the speed of light in a vacuum became a certain fixed value. And scientists tell us that if that value was even a tenth of a kilometre a second out, life as we know it on this planet could not exist. If the gravitational constant was slightly out, Earth would not have been created in the way it was to support life, to support us. God's creation of the universe, the universe might be really big, but he had to get it exactly right just so that we could exist. And so it's a, it's a principle. And 
let, let's use one of those principles to explain salvation. Let's make it really simple. Imagine, the, let's take gravity. It's a principle. Who knows that, you know, if you step off a tall building, gravity, which doesn't hate you or like you in any particular way, will suddenly take effect and you will fall. And you will keep falling until you are stopped by an object, usually the ground, which is hard and unforgiving and you will die. Now imagine that life was like gravity. And so that, imagine that you're born on the top of a very tall building and you're just straight out of the womb, over the gap. And you're falling. Still remember that joke about the guy who jumped off a tall building halfway down. He said, seems to be going okay so far. And who knows, we're like that about life. But right next to us, as we're falling, from, and this is a very, very tall building, it takes all our life to get to the bottom. And we're falling. And it seems to be going okay so far. And suddenly we notice there's, a, there's, there's this hovering lift next to us. And on this lift is Jesus. And he says, I'm here just to let you know that you're falling. And at the bottom is this very, very hot pit. And I've got this, this hovercraft here. And if you want to avoid falling in that pit, you just have to hop on the hovercraft. And by the way, I'm in charge of the hovercraft, not you. And if you're prepared to acknowledge that, then hop on board. And we look around, we think, life's pretty good. I don't want to hop on the hovercraft. And Jesus said, well, that's, that's your choice. But it's here, and it, it will stop you falling into that pit. But we're so far, we can't see the pit from up there. I mean, it's a long, long way. And so we, we, there's clouds and stuff, and life's going on. We're thinking, ah, don't think I'll bother. I'm not sure that he, perhaps he's not telling the truth. I'll, I'll just carry on as I am, thank you. But there's a principle at work here. We're falling towards the pit. And people say, well, why, does, why does God allow suffering? Why would God consign people to hell when they're really good people? But he hasn't. He said, here, hop on board the hovercraft. He hasn't said, if you don't, he hasn't said you're on the hovercraft and if you're not good, I'm going to kick you off. You're falling. There's a principle at work here since the beginning of time of gravity. And it's, a, it's not, a, not a rule. It's not like I've just decided gravity is going to make you fall. Just because I like the idea. People tripping over all the time. And have you ever fallen up? I never have. Every time I try it, I, f- I fall down. You know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy defines flying as throwing yourself at the ground and missing. It's never worked for me. But, and so, you know, and why is there so much suffering and death in the world? Why does God allow that? Well, it's because he's made an offer. And this hovercraft goes with us all of our life. Any time we can choose to hop on the hovercraft. He doesn't give up like Brendan was saying. You know, it hasn't happened yet. doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. The hovercraft never goes away until that final entrance. But because there's a, there are principles at play here, because we're not on the hovercraft, we can do what we like. You know, the world involved in wars and murder and, and, and despicable and despotic behavior because we're not on the hovercraft. And Jesus said, well, hang on, you're in charge of that bit, but... If we, if we all got on board, imagine how we could change the world. But because of the principle in, principles involved, you, you're allowed to do what you like while you're falling. It's not that he wants 
things to happen. It's just that, unfortunately, he's given us free will. If I was God, I wouldn't have given you a lot free will. Big mistake. And so there's a, salvation is a principle. We have an option at any point in our life to say, I don't want to fall and at the end of my life keep falling into that pit. I want to, I want to get on board the hovercraft. And guess what? The more people on board the hover, hovercraft, the more of an effect we can have on everybody else around us. And that's, that's the principle. If you want to put it really, really, and that's a really simple analogy. But that's basically salvation. It's not a rule God's put into place to punish the people who don't take it. It's just that we're involved in the principle of falling in sin, if you like, right now. And God has given us an opportunity to negate that principle by stepping on board the plan of salvation that he has. As I close this morning, can I get everybody to close their eyes? Now I know sometimes, you know, when you tell stories, it's not always clear. But hopefully that, to me, that, that makes so much more sense that we have a choice in life, that because of the principles of the universe, we are falling to an eternal life, which could be quite miserable. But Jesus is offering us a way out. As we fall through life, we always have an opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to take a different approach to my life. And so, while everybody's eyes are closed, if you've understood that analogy that there's a way of living that involves a very, very long drop and a way of living which enables you to escape that by accepting the fact that Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, the Savior of your life, has a better plan for you than you do. Then I want to give you an opportunity this morning to say, I want to take that plan. I want to hop on board the hovercraft. And Jesus invites us in just by allowing us to proclaim in our hearts and with our mouth that we're prepared to put him in charge. So if you've never done that this morning, you've never put Jesus Christ in charge of your life, but you would like to see your life changed, you would like to see your destination changed, your destiny changed, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. So if that's you while nobody's looking around, can you put your hand up? I'll acknowledge that hand. We can pray together to bring you onto the hovercraft, into the kingdom of God, into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Is there anybody here this morning who wants to do that? Thank you, Lord. You can open your eyes. It looks like we're all on the hovercraft. This is really good. So we need to get excited about the fact that the hovercraft gets bigger. and no, There's no middle. We're always on the edge. We can always see people who aren't on it. We're called to actually call to them and offer them the opportunity to hop on board with us. That's what discipleship's about. That's what evangelism's about. It's about encouraging people to come and experience the saving power of Jesus Christ, to make disciples. 
Who thinks that making disciples sounds hard? It's a bit tricky, really, disciple making. But it's, it's actually really easy. Cody, come here. See, Cody's my disciple. Now, I'm going to I'm going to pray. Let, let's pray a spirit of healing on Cody. That he's he's got healing hands. Who who here needs healing? Who's who's sick? Who needs a? Come on, there's got to be somebody here who's not well. <laughs> David's not well. I always knew that. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> have you got something you'd like us to pray pray for? Okay, well, come out here. Now you see, I can pray for David, but I've just prayed that Cody has a spirit of healing on his hands. So you put your hand on David. That's it. Okay, you can sit down now. You still think, well, that wasn't very complicated. He didn't. Cody didn't even say anything. Well, in the Bible it says you lay hands upon people and people will be healed. It doesn't say you pray complicated prayers. It doesn't say you have to have trained in Bible. How long have you been in Bible college? not at all it just says you need to put what you have into other people's lives and encourage them to put that into somebody else that's discipleship Cody's now my disciple we'll have a coffee after the service thing that's not discipleship but it's actually putting something into other people of what God has put into your life and then encouraging them to do the same thing I'm hoping and I'm not fooling here I'm hoping that Cody is encouraged that he has the capability of healing people. And that if somebody says, I'm not well, a thought's going to spring into his mind, I can fix that. Now, he doesn't have to sort of say, look, I'm a bit of a healer. I'm just going to lay hands on you. And he, you know, Especially at places like school where you've got to be a bit sneaky. You're, just, you're not looking well. Hope you're feeling better. Underneath he's going, oh, be healed in Jesus' name. But he's just laid hands on him with that faith that he has the healing power of Christ inside him. The other guy just doesn't know. He just gets better. But I'm, God always reminds us of these things. The next time he's sick, he's going he's to find Cody and say, you know, last time you were, well, we were talking about this, I got better. What would you do? Cody goes, ah, nothing. Slap him on the back. Got him again. Discipleship is simple. Let's be disciples and disciplers. People. Just, just take what God has given us and spread it to others. Let's stand as we close this morning.